0: Perceptions podcast.
1: Buddhism is a very comprehensive way of thinking about reality. It has about it. Uh, the Buddhist scriptures and writings have a kind of loftiness, a kind of nobility, a kind of dignity, which is partly because it's very old in origin, but also because the concepts seem to have a kind of profundity about them, uh, the nature of life...
0: Comprehensive, noble, profound. It's what you might expect to hear from an ardent follower of the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. But actually, you're listening to the Most Reverend Kanishka Raffel, the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, and he has insightful and sympathetic things to say about Buddhism. Frankly, who wouldn't? Buddhism is surely the nice guy on the religious block. According to Boston University's prestigious World Religions Database, there are just under 550 million Buddhists in the world today. That's about 7% of the world's population. And Buddhists are found in detectable numbers in 150 of the 234 countries of the world. It's the fourth largest world religion behind Hinduism with 1.1 billion, Islam with 1.9 billion, and Christianity with 2.5 billion. In my own country, Buddhism is a minority religion, just 2.4% of the population, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. It's been growing, though. 30 years ago, it was just 1% of the population. The same is happening in the US. According to the Pew Research Center, the Buddhist population in North America is on a steady growth curve, projected to increase from roughly 4 million back in 2010 to over 6 million in the next 30 years. Most of that growth is due, of course, to immigration, but Buddhism has also been capturing the imagination of many Westerners who are perhaps jaded by centuries of the Judeo-Christian way of things. Buddhism probably takes the prize for the world's most lovable religion. I've had many people say to me over the years, oh, I love the Buddhist philosophy. And there's a lot to like. Uh, think of the Buddhist Orlando Bloom, the handsome, socially concerned Hollywood star. And then there's the head of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama. He's a very likeable guy. He's Always happy, it seems. Always serene. And he's always packing out venues for lectures on his faith, including in Sydney, where I live. Then, of course, there's the Buddha himself, recognisable to most Westerners as that smiling, contented fellow in the great statues of Asia. Buddhism is also famously a religion of peace. Everyone knows Buddhists wouldn't hurt a fly, literally, let alone human beings. Given the bloody trail of religious history throughout Europe and the Middle East, it's no wonder people think Buddhism wins our vote. But is this widespread appreciation of Buddhism matched by widespread understanding? Do we faintly praise a religion we haven't paused to learn? Are we willing to go beyond the smiling Buddha statue we spot in our Thai restaurant to the sophisticated, serious philosophy held by half a billion people. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academic's new book, 15 New Testament Words of Life, by Nijay Gupta. Each episode of Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And if the hour of undeceiving isn't enough, join the Undeceptions Plus community for just $5 Aussie a month. You'll get extended interviews with my guests, bonus episodes and tons of other extras. Undeceptions.com forward slash plus. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime. What investigating death teaches us about the meaning of life by acclaimed cold case homicide detective, J. Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders... Okay, and I'll glance down here every now and then. I, I am still listening to what you're saying. But sure, I, sure, that's all right. I'm just writing this to make sure. I'm that... a preacher. I'm used to people not listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, firstly, Kanishka, what... I'm meeting with the Most Reverend Kanishka Raffle in St Andrew's Cathedral, which is the official church of the Archbishop of Sydney. It's a pretty impressive sandstone and stained glass Gothic edifice. It soars above the Town Hall Square in the heart of Sydney. Kanishka Raffel is the 13th Archbishop of Sydney, and as such, he's one of the most influential Anglicans worldwide. But Kanishka grew up in a Buddhist home. Well,
1: my family background is Sri Lankan, and my mother's family and my mother were Buddhist. Um, My father's family were descended from the Europeans in Sri Lanka, and so his family background was Christian, and his parents were very uh, committed Christians but my mother took charge of religious instruction of um, me and my two sisters and so we were raised as Buddhists. I was born in England, Uh, we came to Australia in the 1970s so I practiced Buddhism in a Western context which especially meant at home. So my earliest religious memories actually are of saying Uh, the kind of Buddhist chants that uh, people would say every day, um, taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the teaching, taking refuge in the Sangha, the uh, uh, priesthood, and the five daily precepts, not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, uh, not to engage in sexual misconduct, hard to do when you're five years old, uh, not to take intoxicating substances. And so that uh, punzel daily prayers was, that was a part of my childhood
0: routine. And what about instruction? Were you taught the precepts of the faith? You know, the, uh, you know, the Four Noble Truths, were you actually instructed in these and how?
1: Yeah, that's a, that, that's a very perceptive question because I wasn't growing up as a child or a teenager um, in a Buddhist culture and I didn't easily have access Uh, The first Buddhist temple opened in Sydney, um, I believe it was the first, in 1975 in Stanmore, and so we began to go there as a family. And uh, by that time, uh, as I was getting a little bit older, I could uh, listen to the monk uh, as he would give a little sermon when we went. But we didn't go regularly. It's not necessarily something that you would uh, do in the way that Christians might think of going to church on a weekly basis. Buddhists don't necessarily think of doing that. Uh, on a weekly kind of basis. So, in fact, I had very little instruction. Uh, I always identified as a Buddhist and called myself as a Buddhist. Um, but it wasn't until I got to university that uh, I kind of decided on my own that I would undertake study in Buddhism um, and uh, grabbed the whole variety of books and pamphlets and visited the temple to pick up things uh, and, in a sense, uh, started to tutor myself in the religion that I had always confessed, uh, you know, I didn't go to scripture at school because I was a Buddhist, <laughs> but I uh, I'd had actually little instruction until I kind of did that in a self-motivated kind of way.
0: Like Kanishka, the founder of Buddhism was raised in a household with a different religion from the one he ended up preaching to the world. Siddhartha Gautama was an Indian prince, traditionally believed to have lived from 566 to 486 BCE. There's a little bit of scholarly debate about the dates, but no one doubts he really existed. We're not talking about a mythical figure. He was raised as a Hindu. Hey, sorry to interrupt myself, but I'll even interrupt myself when it's important. I should probably explain why I just said BCE instead of BC. Um, My preference in both academic and popular stuff is to use the traditional Western dating convention of BC before Christ and AD, Anno Domini, the year of our lord. This convention is still widely accepted in secular ancient history and classics journals. So I'm good with it. But in this context, I feel I should only use BC and AD when talking about Christian history and belief. When talking about other religions, it just feels best to use the recent alternative convention of BCE, before the common era, and CE common era. It somehow feels more polite not to force, say, my Buddhist listeners to hear that their founder can be dated to the year of my Lord. So I hope in doing this, I'm not going to annoy Christian listeners. Back not to me. A mythical figure. He was raised as a Hindu and a member of the warrior king caste of Indian society. Historical records about his life of the kind demanded by Western historians aren't easy to find. We don't have biographies or passing mentions in secular sources from the period. What we have are hundreds of illustrative stories about him, preserved initially in oral tradition and written down two or three hundred years later.
2: Our sources are very interesting because they're all oral Mm. literature. So it's a bit like the Vedas, we know they've been there for for Mm. centuries, but they weren't written down for quite a long time. And all of the texts, all of the accounts of the the Buddha's uh, life events were recited and passed on from generation to generation, and probably not written down for two or three hundred years after his death. But that is a very faithful mode of transmission, so we can be reasonably certain that uh, the sources are roughly correct. uh,
0: That's Dr Sarah Shaw, a member of the Faculty of Oriental Studies at Oxford University and an honorary fellow at the Oxford Centre for Buddhist Studies. She's also the author of Buddhist Meditation, an anthology of texts, and An Introduction to Buddhist Meditation. And the Vedas she's talking about are a collection of Hindu mantras, hymns or chants that, like Buddhist sources, were passed on orally for centuries before they were eventually written down. OK, so from those sources, what, what can we say with some degree of confidence is a plausible outline of his life? I mean, he's a he's a prince. Yeah, 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 am I right in, just, in calling him Siddhartha Gautama, or is there yes. a better way to pronounce it?
2: You could call him, yes, Siddhartha Gautama is is, is fine. I think he's what's called a raja, which is, is actually a sort of prince, is a kind of a bit, probably a bit more like an, a dukedom. Yeah. It's a small state where you're kind of the, the sole mm-hmm. leader, or rather his father was. We know that uh, from the text that he was uh, born and... A lot of myths have accreted clearly around the birth, saying how wondrous it was. But it seems he was considered to be a very exceptional child. But there was a risk that he might become an ascetic and a Buddha, a a teacher who could show the way to others. Uh, The other choice that was suggested to him at birth by uh, Sears was was that he would become this pan-Indic ideal of a universal monarch. Now, clearly, his dad wanted the monarch option, (laughs) so tried to shield him from any of the harsh things in life. And again, we have mythic accretions here, but he was clearly kept within the palace and um, had very sumptuous uh, surroundings and a very wonderful lifestyle. And it appears he marries, and certainly many of the texts say that. Though the very earliest texts are rather economical about that, he clearly did have a spouse, a validated spouse, and apparently a son. Hmm. Up to his late twenties, so we're talking. Yes. Accounts vary, okay. but he would be, he would be quite young. Hmm. In in yes, late twenties would be would be fine. There are other accounts, but yes. Um, and then he sees what are called the four deva, or the messages from the gods, which, of course, are things we all see every day, which is um, illness, uh, sickness, old age, and death.
0: So someone accidentally led him out of the palace?
2: Is that... He goes for a ride with his charioteer, and some people say it was all on the same day, some people say it was on four different days. He sees a sick man, an old man, um, a dead man, a corpse, but also a mendicant. The fourth one is a mendicant, a wandering ascetic. And he realises that that is the answer for him if he's going to be able to deal with these three unpolished. So brothers. he's emotionally shocked. He is disturbed. utterly shocked yeah. because he's never seen anything like this before. And I think we can see something which is genuinely mythic in a much larger sense. It's a bit like parents who try to... Protect. We all try and protect mm. our children from mm. seeing things that are too unpleasant. But all children remember the moment when they do first encounter, say, a dead body or somebody really yeah. sick, and it's it it's imprinted yeah. in your mind yeah. and very traumatic. Mm. And all, the instinct of all parents is to protect the child mm. from that. So I think you can see his life story has been a bit mythic in that regard. Yeah that he has an upbringing where his parents wanted the best for him in a secular way and, and as a king we can say as a, a successful businessman if yeah. we want to use it to use modern language um
0: and so he sets out to but sort of find the answer he tries to, to
2: find the answer yeah. yes yeah and so amongst the
0: sort of hindu ascetics, am i right
2: yes and, and and so he escapes the palace now i think india must have been a really interesting Uh, place at that time because clearly there were all sorts of, and it still is to a certain extent like this, all sorts of wandering teachers, uh, people exchanging views, teaching meditations. So after those teachers he then goes and practices mortifications. And I think this is very...
0: Mortifications in Hinduism are just ascetic practices like fasting, holding certain body postures, often really uncomfortable ones, and keeping vigils, often in extreme heat or extreme cold. It's about disciplining the physical in order to attain the spiritual.
2: And I think this is very interesting because he sort of works through this thing that I think a lot of us have, that you really have to suffer to have wisdom. And so he goes through the whole suffering thing. Um, but curiously enough, he, doesn't, he feels it he doesn't give him wisdom. And I think this is a great insight here that this self-inflicted suffering is not actually going to give any wisdom. And at that point, he is so ill that accounts go back to his father that he's near death. And it's, he really hasn't got anywhere.
0: Siddhartha had set out to discover for himself the secret of serenity in a world of pain, and he'd failed. A lifetime of luxury and six long years of denial had convinced him that neither extreme provided the answer he was looking for. The key to the removal of suffering, Siddhartha thought, must lie somewhere else. He committed himself to pondering this dilemma night and day until he found a solution.
2: But he remembers that as a child, the first time he'd been left alone at a plowing festival, so it's a very happy, earthy event, he'd been put under a tree, and he'd be about seven or eight. And he started just watching the breath, and spontaneously entered an an ecstatic and very unificatory experience called jhana, which just freed the mind from the searching for things all the time and he came to peace and felt some great peacefulness and then this is a passage which you often see sort of randomly quoted but people don't really explore much he said why have I been so frightened of happiness and I think that's a very interesting question because I think people are frightened of happiness why am I so frightened of the happiness that is free from sense desire And it's like, why have I been pushing it away with deliberately looking for suffering? What if that state, and it's called the first jhana, could be the way to full awakening and wisdom? Why don't I try eating properly, leading a normal life in terms of my lifestyle, and then try and practice this state again? And that was his turning
0: point. Siddhartha's struggle towards comprehending the best path through a painful life continued and culminated one evening in May. One night while sitting under an old tree, known now as the Bodhi tree, the wise tree, the answer came to him in an instant of pure insight. This was the moment of enlightenment for Siddhartha Gautama. From that time on, he'd be known to his disciples as the Buddha, which just means enlightened one.
2: He spent the night exploring this state of joy that he'd, he'd known earlier, and he realized that it freed him from all the worry about things and the stresses and the anxiety. And it also freed him from something one called call eye making this latching onto events and clinging onto them and making them me or mine. Mm. It's like he could watch all events that had occurred in his life and in many past lives, and a lot of people like to take that metaphorically. I, I take it quite literally. I don't see how a law of karma can uh, operate without many lives. Mm. Uh, but he, apparently he looked into all these lives, and he could just step back and watch with what is called equanimity. And then he saw that these processes of making eye all the time were going on in all the other beings around him and he just let go he was free and he said uh, apparently at the time uh, a joyous utterance the house builder has gone he'd stopped building mm. houses mm. and he realized he was just free of this attachment so this is called his enlightenment yeah.
0: The Buddha had been raised as royalty, with the duty of ruling over the people of North East India. But for the next 45 years, he'd devote himself exclusively to teaching his insights to anyone who would listen. He began with a small group of just five disciples, to whom he preached his first famous sermon immediately after his enlightenment. Now, these five disciples were the beginning of what's called the Sangha, or Buddhist community. The Buddha won many more converts to his way of enlightenment over the coming decades, until his death at the age of 80. And his followers, both monks and nuns, did likewise. They also preached throughout China, south to Sri Lanka and Indonesia, then up through Iran and into what is now Pakistan and Afghanistan. Much of what the Buddha taught amounted to a rejection of the religion he'd been raised with. Unlike Hinduism, he taught that men and women were to reject both the paths of delight and asceticism in favour of his middle path. This wasn't a happy balance between the two extremes, a little bit of pleasure and a little bit of pain, but the dismissal of both paths altogether. The Buddha also rejected the Hindu caste system, the role of the Brahmins as religious guides, and any idea of merging with God. He regarded teachings about God and the soul as pure guesswork and completely irrelevant to the path of wisdom. Now, he didn't come out and say, friends, there is no God in the universe. Um, So he probably wasn't a convinced atheist. He simply dismissed questions like that outright. In his view, these were ignorant, foolish matters. He was, if you like, a practical atheist, if not a theoretical one. He even rejected the idea that there is a you to think about in the first place. You might want to pause here and let this thought occupy your mind for a little bit. A key doctrine of Buddhism is anatman, not self. The belief that you, as well as John Dixon, do not ultimately exist. Without going into too much detail, the Buddha's doctrine of the Five Aggregates of Attachment and another doctrine known as the Conditioned Arising, both say there is no thinker, there are just thoughts. There is no smeller, there are just acts of smelling. There is no listener, there are just acts of listening. In short, There is no you at all. And this becomes really important in the Buddhist system. So let it just sit there in your mind. The thought that there is no you, just the things that aggregate to convince you there is a you. So much for what the Buddha rejected. What he proposed in its place can be summarized in four basic beliefs and eight disciplined Habits. This makes memorising the whole Buddhist system pretty easy, which of course isn't the same as actually understanding it. The four beliefs are known as the four noble truths, and they're all about experiencing tranquility in a world of suffering. The first noble truth is easy to understand. It involves simply acknowledging the existence and nature of suffering.
2: The
0: noble truth of suffering, Dukkha, is this Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Association with the unpleasant is suffering. Dissociation from the pleasant is suffering. Not to receive what one desires is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to grasping are suffering.
2: Dukkha is, is duh means things not being really quite as you want them. It, can, it becomes dus in, in Greek, the, 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 the bad. Um, and it's things that aren't quite perfect. And I think if you say to anybody, well, nothing's perfect, everybody knows what you mean. And this is really this inherent property of events is that they have some imperfection about them.
0: Yeah. And uh, so even even um, moments of bliss and happiness and joy can be They are
2: dukkha. impermanent. They won't last. They're yeah. not permanent self. I can't make them mine. Yeah. It's like a very basic thing we all know yeah. and we all fight against. So that is the the first noble truth of, of dukkha and The first discourse is very interesting. This is the one uh, the Buddha teaches to five ascetics he'd been
0: practising. This is the setting in motion?
2: The setting in motion of the wheel of, of the teaching, the Dhamma. He said the only thing you can do about things not being quite
0: perfect is just understand that. For Kanishka, the first noble truth was a compelling insight into the human problem
1: the nature of life is suffering. Initially that sounds kind of pessimistic, but as you delve into that concept uh, more deeply there are resonances with experience. You say, well yes, there's uh, sickness and death, uh, but there's also the impermanence of everything. What I want I can't have. When I have it, I can't hold on to it. These kinds of ideas resonate. And so there is a sense of keen observation about the nature of life, and especially uh, the first noble truth and the nature of life as
0: suffering. Which leads us to the second noble truth, the origin of suffering.
2: (laughs) Now this,
0: monks, is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination.
2: The second one is the the tanha, the thirst or the craving that causes, it's the origin of this tension and this sense of things not being perfect. That is because we, we want things. We want things to be in a certain way and we need to want them. It, it's an inherent part of our experience that there will be a wanting of some, some kind. And the verb for this one is that this wanting is to be abandoned, not rejected, mm-hmm. but just let go of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is um, desire or craving, you often find it in the English text. Yes, anyway. yes, yeah. Tanhar.
2: It's, it's thirst, really. It's just Thrust. we want, the, the, this is the origin yeah.
0: of, of our... Uh. And it makes sense. I mean, it's perfectly logical. If I, if I long for something that I don't get, um, and I feel pain because I mm. didn't get it, well, the thing that's caused the pain is not the object. But my thirst for the object yes. is that basically yes, what he's saying I, in the I second novel. That proof? is,
2: and it's something that inheres in all our experience. It's a kind of, um, we, it's just how things are. We we couldn't function without it, and you know, and obviously I need to get thirsty to drink. You know, um, but it is something that's right at the root of, of any kind of uh, consciousness and experience in a body. And is this least.
0: wish. The logic is hard to argue with. The origin of the pain experienced by the beggar isn't simply the result of the circumstances of poverty, but the beggar's thirst, craving for a better life. Or perhaps more relevantly, the angst so many wealthy Westerners feel is related not so much to life experiences, but to our craving for more and more. And thus, we're disappointed, frustrated. Once you acknowledge the existence of suffering, the first noble truth, and then understand its origin in our desires, the second noble truth, we can turn very naturally to the removal of suffering, and that's the third noble truth, the realization that peace in the midst of suffering comes by eliminating this thirst. If you eradicate your craving for pleasure, existence, and even non-existence, suffering
2: evaporates the noble truth
0: of the cessation of suffering is this it is the complete cessation of that very thirst giving it up renouncing it emancipating oneself from it detaching oneself from it
2: dukkha is to be understood craving or the second noble truth is to be abandoned. So we abandon that. And the third noble truth is to be realized. And this is when that craving stops. And of course, like all traditions or philosophical traditions and religious traditions, how do you describe the goal? It, and there, are, it, we say it's ineffable. Um, you can't talk about it. But the, uh, what they do say in Buddhism is it's very happy, <laughs> but Um, it's beyond pleasure or pain or our normal concept. So equanimity
0: Equanimity. is the, I see it in the translations anyway, do you like that as a
2: Um, translation? Because it it it, has a sense
0: of the sort of perfectly balanced between or neither attached to sadness or attached to happiness.
2: It's near it, but even equanimity, there is a kind of great relief apparently of this state which is almost beyond equanimity, beyond apatheia or whatever it's it's Uh something much much Uh greater than that but anyway it's just very nice (laughs) I think it is and and what I I think is useful to know that in Buddhism if you have any moment of a skillful consciousness of an awake mindful consciousness you are experiencing the factors that will be eventually present and contribute to that state Mm. so any moment can be a glimpse Mm. and that's why people do have moments where you know they save a child from going under a car or something and the world just changes and these according to buddhism are moments when there is selflessness there is no sense of self you
0: just do it yeah were you any good at um, (laughs) extinguishing (laughs) desire i thought i was pretty good i
1: thought i was pretty good Um, So, you know, I wasn't a very good Buddhist. And you you rarely meet a person who will describe themselves as a good Buddhist. It's a a lofty ideal. It's a very lofty ideal. And if you meet a person who's committed to the Eightfold Path, who's committed to cultivating wisdom and compassion, think, wow, well, what better human ideals than to cultivate wisdom and repudiate ignorance? and to cultivate compassion and repudiate greed and hatred. I was probably satisfied <laughs> with a lower standard than I should have been, but, um, uh, but certainly at that time, I mean, at that time at university, when I was dedicating myself to the study of this and I began to practise meditation more consistently uh, than, I, than I ever had, you know, I, I definitely thought I was on the path, I was taking steps.
0: There's lots more to Buddhism than just the Four Noble Truths, and we'll get to the Fourth Noble Truth in just a bit. But it's probably worth pausing here for a moment just to clear up a common misconception. Buddhists don't believe in reincarnation. The Buddhist doctrine of rebirth is slightly different from the Hindu doctrine of reincarnation, am I right? I mean, I have read a text, a Buddhist text, mm. in the Tripitaka, that, that is titled, at least in the English, uh, rebirth is not reincarnation and there's this whole argument that it's not a soul passing to a new body to, uh, to yes, a new there, body
3: there, to there a is new a
2: different I, I mean i think we we have other analogies um, i like i've always liked the billiard ball one where you the momentum of one ball knocks the next one and so you have a, a flow of something continuing or the candle flame yes. the, the, it's a flame like a flame mm-hmm. lighting another so there is continuity, there is an inheritor there of, of deeds, if you say, if you do something, you will, um, if you're very kind to somebody now, they, there will be a karmic response mm-hmm. to that, and you will re- be the recipient of the good of effect at some point
0: but not as simple as the hindu idea of an atman uh, uh, no
2: it is not like that it's not like the sense that you almost the soul puts on different clothes in a different life it isn't as simple as that yeah it's perhaps not as different as people make out but okay. it's not overtly as okay. simple yeah you
0: know. So, what Buddhists are trying to avoid isn't exactly having their soul transmigrate to another body in a new life of suffering, as in Hinduism. They're trying to prevent the matter and sensation of this current existence pushing forward, like a billiard ball, to the matter and sensation of another existence. After all, that would just create more suffering in the world. There is an escape, though. It's called Nirvana the goal of the third noble truth. Nirvana isn't really heaven in the Christian sense. It's not even a blissful state of mind. It is the extinguishment of desire, whether the desire for pleasure, for existence, even for non-existence. Put another way, Nirvana is the realization that the self doesn't really exist and that human desire is therefore empty. A person who's come to this realization is able to act in this world with complete detachment, that is, without any desire. The person who attains the state of nirvana has escaped the world of cause and effect, the billiard balls, and is free from the cycle of birth and rebirth. This is the cessation.
2: Well, that's really what I, what I was saying. I, I can't. It is inevitable. It, it literally means the quenching. Mm. I mean, if you think of India as somewhere where there's just fire everywhere, people are using it for cooking, for rituals, the heat, that to have a notion of quenching a fire is actually a great relief to most people in mm. that climate. Mm. And Nibbana means that the mm. quenching of mm. a fire.
0: And that's the fire of our desire yes, for the yeah, things yeah, that yeah. fire To be attached to self, to other things, Mm. can be extinguished.
2: Yeah, and it means that you are then free, and it doesn't stop you enjoying things. Yes, Yes, it it is actually positive.
0: Yes, our Buddhist friends take all of this very seriously, of course. The notion that detachment is the path to Nirvana, to the end of suffering, is taken so seriously by Buddhists that the story of the Buddha's own death is told in the Buddhist scriptures to illustrate this point. The disciples who witnessed the Buddha's serene passing, his parinirvana, total unbinding, or death, suddenly burst into tears in the scriptures. They're devastated at the thought that they'll never see their Tathagata, their Lord, ever again. They cry out, and I'm quoting here, All too soon is the blessed one totally unbound. All too soon is the one with eyes disappeared from the world. Then... In this same passage, one of them realises that they're actually disobeying the Buddha's own teaching by being attached to the Buddha and letting their emotions get the better of them. Venerable Anuruddha addressed the monks, and here I'm quoting again, Enough, friends. Don't grieve. Don't lament. Hasn't the blessed one already taught the state of growing different with regard to all things dear and appealing? The state of becoming separate? The state of becoming otherwise? What else is there to expect? It is impossible that one could forbid anything born, existent, fabricated, and subject to disintegration from disintegrating. They're all convinced, and we're told they spent the rest of the evening in constant Dharma talk, philosophizing and recalling the Buddha's teachings. All of which raises the question, how do you attain this state of serenity, especially in the face of suffering? What path exactly should we follow to extinguish desire and attain nirvana? That is the fourth noble truth. I said a moment ago that almost everything the Buddha taught can be understood as the exposition of four basic beliefs, the four noble truths, and eight basic habits, the eightfold path. But it turns out that the fourth noble truth is itself the teaching about the eight basic habits. In the Buddha's own words, the noble truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering is this. It is the noble eightfold path and nothing else. Namely, right understanding, right aim, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These eight basic habits are known collectively as the Eightfold Path, which in turn are usually divided into three different categories. The category of Wisdom, Ethical Conduct, and Mental Discipline. I asked Sarah to explain them in a rapid fire round. Under the category of, of wisdom, um, mm. I think there's a tripartite understanding of the eight, Eightfold Path. So there's right understanding and right aim. Can you distinguish Yes, those I'd us?
2: say right view because I like the, the first one's definitely to do with seeing. It's to do with clearing your glasses. You know, It's uh, seeing the world without clinging to a notion of a permanent mm. self that, right, this is going to happen to me. My view is this. But likewise, not clinging to an absence mm-hmm. of self, so it is clear seeing, and it's like washing the car, <laughs> the car windscreen. It's so that you can see ahead clear. So I like right view, mm-hmm. <laughs> aim, right aim. Right intention is an intention that is not coloured by. Um, Hatred or desire or ignorance. Okay. So okay. friendliness. If somebody's genuinely friendly, they don't have to have a, an ulterior yeah. motive. It uh, is yeah. right
0: intention. Sincerity, yeah. sort of thing, is it? Sort of, sort of yes, close I to sincerity. It's like an authentic, yeah,
2: an authentic it.
0: Under ethics, there's right speech, right action, right livelihood.
2: Absolutely. What do yes. these mean? Um, well, that's very interesting. Uh, when when I teach ethics to uh, students here, w- we always have a quiz about ethics because they say, well, they're not interested in ethics at all, and I say, okay. Would you take a magazine that was left on a train carriage seat? If you ask people about very small things, we have quite serious ethical problems all the time. Do you take something that's been left? Um, Do you barge your way into the front of a queue? You hope not. These are all ethical questions. So these three are actually very important in our lives, though I think um, (laughs) I once gave a talk I thought it'd be interesting to explore goodness. And it was at the Buddhist Society in London. They always have loads of people. But the audience was so much lower because who's interested in goodness? (laughs) Goodness does not interest people now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is a sense in Buddhism that if you behave ethically, you will actually become more mindful and alert and be happier.
0: So but these three are you know speaking in accordance with you know, yes. in the Buddhist principles, acting, uh, and livelihood? It, it, does that, it, it, that, that just right means speech. there's careers you can have and you can't have?
2: I think right, right speech is, is interesting because it's a speech which does not divide, which causes harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, right livelihood is anything that does not cause harm to other beings mm-hmm. in terms of, like, if you're not an arms dealer or a mm-hmm. drug dealer. Uh, and right right action is is action which is in accordance with... What is a good thing to do? The Dhamma,
0: they call it, the the, the moral principle. The The concrete expression of right speech, right action and right livelihood are the so-called five precepts, the Pankasilla. These are the Buddhist equivalent of the famous Ten Commandments. They are to abstain from taking life, to refrain from stealing to avoid sexual immorality, to refrain from lying, and to abstain from all intoxicants, alcohol and drugs. Following the 5 Pancasila is a necessary precondition for engaging in any of the more rigorous aspects of the Eightfold Path, such as those belonging to the category of mental discipline, mindfulness and concentration. As Sarah says, these are not the same thing.
2: It's very interesting. We've slightly conflated the Mm. two
0: in the West and and
2: you you have mindful moments on on various television programs and they tend to be things that arouse stillness or concentration because we've slightly conflated the two. Maybe we need to. But mindfulness is that alertness which is aware of the world around both inside and out. People sometimes say it's non-judgmental, which I, I think is true, but it is ethical it will it will turn away from what is not good for the mind so it won't make judgments but it will actually discern and and appreciate things so we can look around the room now or appreciate where we are and the moment
0: and And you can do that mindfulness sort of all the time all the time it's
2: it's it's it can be there all the time not as a a heavy effort but just a gentle turning of attention
0: to external objects and am i right that he described it as noticing the coming and the going of all things.
2: It's an awareness directed outwards and in, and both in and out. Mm. Most of the time we, we can get locked in looking only out or looking only in, but it is that gentle awareness that is aware
0: of both. But particularly being mindful of the impermanence of things. So mindful of a sensation I just had, but not attaching to it.
2: Um, You don't have to sort of stress the impermanence, it's just noticing it. Mm. And um, I think just noticing that there are different things going on and enjoying them, yeah.
0: Mm. Mm. And so concentration?
2: Concentration is much more like, in chemistry, a concentrate. It's it's something coming together, Mm. unifying. So uh, that is a moment of real stillness. When it's right concentration, it will be when the mind really comes to rest. Mm -hmm. Um, And is this the the
0: Buddhist Buddhist... In-out breathing meditation. Yes, and you
2: might do a breathing meditation, and that would allow your mind to come to rest on the breath yeah. in a certain way, and that would arouse concentration with mindfulness, yeah. with alertness, because you'd be aware of you're aware of the breath going in and out, but you're also cultivating great peace at the same time. Mm-hmm. So the two do tend to go together.
0: These are the basics, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. But as with any religion, I suppose, things can quickly get more complicated. After the Buddha's death, many groups living in various monasteries began to disagree over various points of belief and practice. And two main schools of Buddhism eventually emerged out of these ancient Buddhist debates. The Theravada tradition, or School of the Elders, is often described as classical Buddhism. It emphasizes the historical man Gautama and tends to shun mystical speculation. It's now found mainly in Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand. Then there's the Mahayana tradition, the Great Vehicle. This accepts a much larger canon or collection of scripture, encourages devotion to the Buddha as a saviour figure, and importantly, it asks Buddhists to delay their own enlightenment to help others get there too. This form of Buddhism is dominant in Tibet, China, Japan, and Korea. Sarah Shaw says the variety of approach is a natural outworking of the creativity at the heart of Buddhism.
2: Really what happened is after the death of the Buddha, Buddhism did change a lot and all sorts of schools emerged um, inevitably. Uh, They tended all to live in the same monasteries, to go to the same monasteries. They had differences of view, opinions, they debated, they discussed, but it seems quite cordial. They do seem to have had quite profound differences, but I don't think it changed how monks and nuns and lay people interacted that much. Right. Things just change, really, after the death of the, the founder of a tradition and the texts start to move on. But I think also people get creative, they want to reformulate things. And the Mahayana really emerged from that. It's, a number, it's an incredibly creative outflowing of Buddhist texts, which are different from the earlier ones in certain cases. But there is an, a very early Buddhist quote, which I think is very important. And it says that if something is true, it's the word of the Buddha. People were asking, well, how can you validate something as the word of the Buddha and the historical Buddha? And this quote just says, if it's true, it's the word of the Buddha.
0: Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism have adopted different emphases when it comes to enlightenment. The Mahayana tradition emphasizes the need to postpone your experience of nirvana in order to save others from suffering before eventually becoming a Buddha yourself. This is the path of the Bodhisattva.
2: It's the path of somebody who wants to help others and to dedicate many, many lifetimes in finding a path for themselves that will help others and all other beings. It's actually in Theravada as well, and there is a Bodhisattva path in Theravada, which is less well known, but it was an idea that was circulating well before the Mahayana, the idea of the Bodhisattva. All Buddhist schools had it in the early days and the mahayana particularly ran with it and felt it was particularly important that everybody should become a bodhisattva
0: am i right that they you know to do this you, you take a vow as it were to um, return you you could not return. Mm-hmm. You could choose not to not to return. You could choose mm-hmm. to enter into Nirvana, but you you choose to return so that you can be a blessing. Yes,
2: others. That, that's to probably, it. That and a, that is possible in all all the traditions of Buddhism. That vow, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. and um, and it's possible and and encouraged. I mean, it's considered good in all traditions of yeah. Buddhism. I think that, that's why I'm very cautious about the Theravada Mahayana difference. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. immense differences but they're often not of the the kind that you often see in, in yeah it's not catholics
0: because, wanting to kill protestants and <laughs> I, I,
2: I think the early early um visitors to these thought it probably was a catholic protestant thing yeah. but it isn't no. buddhism never had a centralized authority there was never a big deal about a new buddhism developing mm-hmm. in a new region mm-hmm. nobody no wars were fought over that mm-hmm. they may have been over other things mm-hmm but it's just got a different history.
3: Yeah.
0: All forms of Buddhism have a shared core of belief and practice. They all follow the way of the Buddha. So how does that way compare to the way of Christ? And what happens when a young, university-educated Buddhist finds himself confronted for the first time with the gospel of Jesus? What is recognisable? What is objectionable? Stay with us. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that by making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students and offer a comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated with over 600 students enrolled and thriving But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted – chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling to Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morning to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G forward slash Undeceptions. There is no such thing as a casual Buddhist, not really. I once overheard a group of pretty obviously non-religious 20-somethings discussing things spiritual. They were guests at a rather loud dinner party on the balcony next door. And short of leaving the balcony I was on, it was difficult not to eavesdrop. I put it down to research. In the course of our conversation, one of the guests offered a personal evaluation. Uh, He contrasted Western religion with Eastern religion. He said something like, Western religion is too full of commandments for me. I prefer the Buddhist system. It doesn't have any of those onerous rules. As he sipped his Chardonnay, unaware of the Buddha's command not to drink alcohol, the others in the little group hmmmed in agreement. Buddhism, they decided, is the no-stress, no-strings-attached religion. The attraction of Buddhism is clear. And it's true that the removal of what we call stress is a key goal of the Buddhist path. But it would be a mistake to assume that the teaching of the Buddha himself was uncomplicated and undemanding. After years of studying and teaching the world religions, I honestly regard Buddhism as the most intellectually complex of the great faiths, and also the one requiring the highest level of discipline from its adherents. I'm not alone.
1: More consistently uh,
0: than, I, than I ever
1: had. You know, I, I definitely thought I was on the path. I was taking steps.
0: When Kanishka Raffel first encountered the Bible, he was a 21-year-old English literature student and a thoughtful Buddhist. He knew the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Pancasilla, and so on. He felt completely sure of his faith the day he first came into contact with a Christian in the wild. And on one occasion I
1: was on holiday with a few friends, some of whom were Christian. I had a conversation with uh, one friend because now I felt equipped with knowledge of my own religion. And so I felt on an equal standing to engage with my Christian friends about faith. And I asked him, you know, tell me me what Christianity means to you. And he said it meant he'd lost control of his life to Jesus Christ. which was an utterly (laughs) I was dumbfounded by that response, Um, and uh, uh, not least of all because giving up control uh, of your life seemed like a very unwise thing to do, even if it was possible to give it up to somebody who'd been dead for 2,000 years. And the kind of emphasis in Buddhism on discipline, on awareness and mindfulness and concentration, and right, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Um, these were not things that came about in the absence of control. They required very serious control. Uh, so, so his remark um, struck me uh, um, in a uh, very lasting kind of way. Do you mean negatively or positively? Um, no, it was very, <laughs> it was very, well, he was a person I respected and, and, and admired and had affection for. So it, it just perplexed me deeply.
0: The more Kanishka compared Jesus and the Buddha, the more perplexed he became. It
1: was the personhood of Jesus which was most striking. The Buddhist teaching um, circulated in an oral form, probably for four centuries after the death of the Buddha. So People are quite open about the fact that nobody can really say when the scriptures say that the Tathagata said this, nobody really knows if he did say it. And in some sense, people would say, well, if there's wisdom here, then you'll be able to use it or not. Even the Buddha, well, (laughs) the Buddha is reported to have said, you know, uh, you don't have to follow my teaching. You have to find
0: your own path. But, But I'm pointing away. And if it's useful, then you use it. Kanishka is alluding to a famous parable the Buddha once told about a man and a raft.
3: Imagine, friends, a man in the course of a journey who arrives at a great expanse of water, whose near bank is dangerous, and whose far bank offers safety. But there is no ferry boat or bridge to take him across the water. So he thinks, what if I collected grass, twigs, branches and leaves and bound them together as a raft supported by the raft and by paddling with my hands and feet. I should then be able to reach the far bank. He does this and succeeds in getting across. On arriving at the far bank, it might occur to him. This raft has been very helpful indeed. What if I were to hoist it on my head or shoulders, then proceed on my journey? Now, what do you think? By carrying it with him, would that man be doing what should be done with a raft? No, sir, replied his audience. So, what should he do with the raft? Having arrived at the far bank, he might think, yes, this raft has been very useful. But now, I should just haul it onto dry land, or leave it floating in the water, and then continue on my journey. In this way, the man would be doing what should be done with that raft. The
0: Buddha was saying that his teaching, and he himself, were the means, not the end. The Dharma helped you across the river of pain and suffering. But once you're on the other side, you don't need to stay devoted to him or his words. The contrast with Jesus was palpable. Kanishka found in the Gospels a disturbing figure, one who was simultaneously earthy and who claimed things about himself that were outrageous, really.
1: The... Buddhist scriptures in uh, citing the Buddha or conveying his teaching do so in a very abstract kind of way. You have no sense uh, of historical context or the personality of the Buddha, Um, which of course is in complete contrast to the Gospels because the Gospels are full of uh, um, the vitality of a living person um, you may not think that Jesus is the Son of God, but you cannot escape uh, the, um, the cut and thrust of his engagement with his opponents, uh, the way he speaks to the outcast and the lonely and the downtrodden, the way he engages with his disciples as he tries to get them to understand things. Um, you see him in a whole variety of uh, contexts which give you a very strong impression of him as a man, and as a very engaging, intriguing, and compelling kind of figure. And that was exactly how I responded to it. I was reading this and thinking, oh gosh, you know, who is this guy? Um, uh, it, so it wasn't what I expected. But he, he makes a terrible Buddhist, though. Jesus. In <laughs> yes. as much as Oh yes, he's a he passionate.
0: We, he weeps and yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's right. He's not a person uh, who is detached or disengaged. He's very engaged, he's
0: very earthy, very real. Kanishka was given the Gospel of John to read by his Christian friend. And as he immersed himself in its words, this Jesus began to emerge as a dynamic and intriguing figure. I wasn't thinking about his
1: teaching so much, actually. Uh, Reading the Buddhist scriptures, you're you're meditating on these truths and trying to perceive and understand and assimilate truth. Uh, But as I was reading the Gospels, I was just engaged with this figure. But then he said some pretty unusual things. So, for example, I noticed that Many times, as John tells the story, Jesus will say something, and then the crowds or the religious leaders or his disciples, they'll have different kinds of uh, responses to what he says. And John, in writing the Gospel, will say, Jesus will do something, and then he'll say, at this the people were divided. So I noticed that. That began to kind of niggle me. Jesus divides people. Where do you sit? What's your response to him? People have a a range of responses. What's your response? I I found myself asking this question. It was as though the gospel was questioning me and I didn't really know how to answer that question because I was a Buddhist (laughs) and uh, uh, I I hadn't counted on having to deal with Jesus. Uh, But then um, I read the gospel several times over and in John chapter six, uh, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me and I will raise them up on the last day. And of that statement, the thing that caught my attention most of all was the last day. Because I believed in the cycle of death and uh, suffering and rebirth and sansara. What last day? (laughs) And then there was this provocative statement of Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them to me. And I was literally staring at the words in in the gospel, saying, well, how do you draw people to yourself? And then it began to dawn on me that maybe it was like this. Maybe it was what was happening right there and then to me. And uh, in God's great kindness, that's actually... I became convinced of that, that God was using the words of Jesus. That verse refers to the words of Jesus. And uh, God was using the words of Jesus to to draw me to him.
0: Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. Well, sort of. It's more like a five-minute Buddha. With apologies to my devout Christian listeners, let me unpack what's wrong with Jesus from the perspective of Buddhism. I'm not trying to be clever. I just think that this is maybe the best way for a Christian like myself to highlight the differences between Christianity and Buddhism in a way that honors Buddhism and gives Buddhism the spotlight. Buddhism, of course, has several disagreements with Hinduism, as I mentioned earlier. The most notable are over things like the existence of the soul, of the self, and the reality and worship of Brahman, or God. The differences between Buddhism and Christianity are just as real. Siddhartha Gautama would have shared Hinduism's criticism of the idea of a future bodily resurrection in a new glorified creation. The resurrection of the body was central to Jesus' teaching and, of course, to his own story. But this is to be too attached to the material world. The material world in Buddhism is impermanent. To hope for ongoing physical existence is to trap yourself in a delusion. The other thing is Jesus' insistence that humanity's deepest need was what he called the forgiveness of sins, Would have struck the Buddha as a kind of ignorance born of at least two illusions. First, that there is a self who sins in the first place, and second, that there is a creator who forgives. Buddhism is not about guilt and mercy, it's about ignorance and enlightenment. Another problem Buddhism has with Christianity concerns the frequent Christian emphasis on grace, the notion that we bring no merit to God, that his salvation is pure gift, a gift of his love for the undeserving. In the Buddha's way of thinking, though, this could be a cop-out. If the problem is our ignorance and ill discipline, then surely the solution is knowledge and discipline. Here's how the Buddha himself put it in the Dhammapada, one of the most beloved portions of the Buddhist scriptures. By oneself is wrong done. By oneself is one defiled. By oneself wrong is not done. By oneself surely one is cleansed. One cannot purify another. Purity and impurity are in oneself alone. Another obvious problem with Jesus from the Buddhist perspective is his passion. One of the striking things about the Gospels is that Jesus is deeply moved by loads of things. He weeps at the death of a friend, John 11. He's outraged at the hypocrisies of the temple officials, going so far as to overturn the money-changing tables, John chapter 2. And he experiences fear and anguish at his own impending death, Luke 22. From the Buddhist perspective, All such emotional reactions to circumstances are at odds with the ideal taught by Siddhartha Gautama, that one has to stand detached from all transitory sensations. I mean no disrespect to the Christian saviour, but the Jesus of the Gospels is not a very good Buddhist. You can press play now. I asked a final set of questions of both Kanishka Raffel, former Buddhist and now Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, and Oxford Buddhist scholar Dr. Sarah Shaw. First, Kanishka. What does he see as the big question Buddhism tries to answer, and how does that compare to the question Christianity claims to answer? I think Buddhism is supremely concerned
1: with what is reality. Buddhism is the search for the truth about reality. It's got a specific answer to that. The specific answer is that reality is impermanence. So all life is suffering because everything is impermanent and, and a very important, but highly confronting aspect of that, of that impermanence is us. We are impermanent. In other words, Buddhism ultimately says the thing that you think is most real, namely yourself, is not real. Uh, Impermanence is not just about the fact that we can't hold on to happiness and joy, let alone things. But we can't hold on to ourselves or even our sense of self. This is the most controversial and the most distinctive doctrine of Buddhism that there is no self, that we are a uh, complex aggregate of uh, formations. I mean, it's difficult to translate these words, but matter, sensation, perception, will, and consciousness. These five uh, elements endlessly combining and recombining so that I, self, me, is an illusion. So it's deeply confronting because it really says the very thing that you think is real, your sense of you is not. And you need to let go of that sense if you're to escape from your experience of suffering. Uh. And Christianity. Uh, So the question that Christianity is trying to answer is, am I loved? Uh, I live in a world of sin and sorrow. Is there love? Is there love in this world? Because I experience lots of things which suggest not, although I experience other things which suggest that there is. What's really real? In a a surprising and unexpected kind of way, it it, it, it
0: does approach the same question, but perhaps from a different standpoint. Kanishka says the Buddhism he encountered was a compassionate religion, but that sometimes the detached intellectual kindness is a world away from what he found in the passion Christian love. I think the
1: difference um, with Christian love is that Christian love requires engagement with others for their benefit at your cost. I mean that is the principle of Christian love modelled on Jesus, uh, self-sacrifice for the good of others in in an unself-interested way and of course It is model on Jesus because he, being God, enters into all the suffering of the world, which he could have avoided and which he comes into, not in order to uh, live in a palace, but to die on a cross, um, to give himself for others, to lay down his life, though he is the author of life. So Jesus becomes a model of self-giving care for others, which Christians rapidly take up at the beginning of sort of Christian history. The most ordinary Christian becomes a person who, who is shaped by their experience of God's compassion towards them in Jesus to offer themselves at the service of others, however humble uh, those others may be, however finite and limited their, their help is that is the instinct of Christianity.
0: I wanted to give Sarah Shaw the last word. I put her on the spot and asked her what she thought was the most compelling thing about Buddhism.
2: Off the top of my head, interdependence. The most exciting Buddhist idea I think I've ever encountered, and I don't know why it just popped into my mind, That is that of the jeweled net. And a physicist told me once that it's, it was the only way he could really of working in advanced physics, who is a Buddhist, the only way he could understand things like quantum physics is this idea of the jewelled net, that everything in the universe is contained in this vast net, and that everything influences everything else, and that in the tiny is the large, and in the large is the tiny. And it's a wonderful idea, it's this net of Indra that is, spreads across the universe, whereby each jewel reflects the light of all the other jewels in the net. And I've always found it a wonderful image, and it applies to relationships between people, between events in the, the, the world of physics, between nations, between, between us all at the moment in Covid. You know, this sense of uh, how deeply we are influenced by each other, but also independent. and, and I, That to me is, is Buddhism in its most sublime form, really.
0: If you're not a subscriber to Underceptions Plus yet, now is the time. We've got a bunch of extras from this season that we're releasing exclusively to our Underceptions Plus subscribers. Extras like the full amazing conversion story of Professor Rosalind Picard, our guest from the emotional intelligence episode, then there's John Walton's answer to why Jesus and Peter mention Noah and the flood if the flood story itself isn't really historical. And from this episode, plenty of bits and pieces that didn't quite make it into the final cut. And the lovely producer Kaylee continues to make fun of me by releasing outtakes from our recording sessions. There's plenty more coming up too. And you can get all this for as little as $5 Aussie a month. Just head to underceptions.com forward slash plus to join. And if you really like us but don't feel the need for these extras, could I ask you to consider just donating? We do need your support. This is a very costly show and we want to make it better. So head to underceptions.com and click the large donate button. I really appreciate it. Hey, and don't forget, we're giving away 20 copies of my new book, A Doubter's Guide to World Religions, to the first 20 new subscribers to the Undeceptions e-newsletter. Just head to undeceptions.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and put your details in where it says subscribe. Next episode, we're talking about the science you've never heard of. The science many people think never existed. I'm talking about the science of... Of the Dark Ages. (laughs) See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon. Produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by the equanimous Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwee. Social media by Sophie Hawkshaw. Administration by Lindy Leverston. Our librarian is Siobhan McGuinness. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com. Letting the truth out.
3: An Undeceptions Podcast